Texas wants you anyway. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Alpstrom. What do Terry Funk, Dusty Rhodes, and David Von Erich have in common? They are integral to the surprising connection between two great professional wrestling hotbeds. This week we're joined by special guest Barry Rose as we look back on Texas and Florida wrestling memories. But first, what's the best restaurant meal that you ever had in Texas? Mike, I think we should let our, our special guest, Mr. Barry Rose, answer that question first. Oh, I, I appreciate it. Gentlemen, thank you so much for having me on. So I haven't spent a ton of time in Texas, which is a shame because apparently everything is bigger in Texas, correct? And better. Uh, and better, exactly. But I, I'll tell you, there were several trips I made between the beautiful sunny beaches of Florida and California in the 1980s. And uh, I would always take I-10 which brought me through Texas and Texas was a really, you know, there's a lot of States you go through. Like I loved Mississippi cause you're in and out of Mississippi in like an hour, but Texas, I think it was something like 16 hours that I was in Texas and it was like, and everything for the most part just looked the same. So it was really tough, but I was very fortunate because as I was driving, I, I guess there's a town, a city, give or take maybe an hour, hour and a half outside of San Antonio called Kerrville, Texas. Oh, boy. <clears throat> you I stumbled had, on some fine dining there. And I did. And it's uh, it was amazing. Again, I had no idea where I was. I don't believe I had ever heard of Kerrville, Texas prior to this. But I uh, got to realize, too, I was in the car. It's uh, it, This was probably May or June. It's probably a hundred degrees out. I'm dirty. You know, th this is, uh, this is 1985. So I'm eating a lot of microwaved hamburgers at gas stations and things like that. So I check into a hotel, a local hotel, and, and I say, where can I go out and eat? I want something that isn't deep fried, something that's good. And they recommended this place and it was called the pioneer house. And I have no idea if this restaurant still exists, but I got to tell you, 34 years later, I still remember every detail about this place. It was uh, run by a husband and a wife. I, I think I was the only diner in the restaurant. It was like a Monday or a Tuesday night. And I sat down and I was starving. And I, I looked over the menu and the first thing that caught my eye was the escargot. Now, gentlemen, does anybody that anybody else like escargot? I've had it. It's got enough butter on it. Well, yeah, I've had it. It's it's uh, it's an acquired taste, but it is good. It is. It's great. Escargot it's great. is great. And it's hard to get it at restaurants now unless you're going to a French restaurant. Right. It's not really on a whole lot of menus. But these were the the best. You know, they were chewy. They were garlicky butter. They It came with this great bread. The escargot was fantastic. But it was the entree that really stayed with me. They served a prime rib and they blackened it. And they served it in a sizzling metal skillet. And I just remember sitting there starving. And I'm starving right now as I'm saying this because I haven't had dinner yet. And 
as I'm sitting there, they bring over this skillet and all the juices of this blackened prime rib are like shooting out that I had to actually back my chair up off the table. Once this thing cooled off just a little bit, I was able to dig into probably the only meal that I can remember on the road trips that I had between Florida and California. And it took place in the bigger and better Kerrville, Texas. <laughs> That's wow. awesome. Well, I've, I've, I'll jump in and say when, you know, I probably talked about it before. There's a lot of places that I think are very, you know, they're tied to memories. So I could talk about the fantastic breakfast at Jim's, which is kind of like a classy Denny's. But it's a like a 1950s Texas cowboy sort of a feeling. It's just <clears throat> it's got that naga hide vinyl seats and just old school eggs and breakfast. And I can remember those breakfasts in the 70s as a kid there. But I'm not going to talk about that one. I will talk about uh, it was closed. I think it is now reopened. There was a place in Kingsville called the King's Inn, and I just remember that you oh, I was a kid and I was impressed because you bought everything by the pound. How many pounds of fried shrimp would you like for the table? How many pounds of fried oysters would you like for the table? How many pounds of fries do you want? How many pounds? You know, you ordered by pounds. And, uh, well, that's a classy way to order. Just by the, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, t- I'll take five pounds of shrimp and then get out of my way. No, it was delicious. It's, um, you know, uh, if you get a chance, a lot of people forget that, you know, they think of Texas and they think of Tombstone, Arizona, which is nothing like. And uh, you got down to the hill country, and there's so many amazing places down there. But I can highly recommend get down to the Corpus area, get down to the Texas coast. You know that that southern Gulf Coast has some amazing restaurants to find, a lot of great seafood and experiences there. So I'd put it on your vacation list if you're going to take a break and get away from it all. Well, I'll tell you, gentlemen, not to interrupt too, but so there was one more item that I got in Texas, and I think this was actually closer to Houston. And this was on the return trip. I would go out to to L.A. two or three times a year and stay for a couple of months. And it was somewhere outside of Houston. And I got for the first time, I got mesquite grilled frog's legs. Mm. Have you have you ever had frog's legs? Yes, I usually have it. I usually have it fried. Um, I've had fried frog's legs. I don't know that I've ever had grilled frog's legs. Certainly not mesquite style, but that's uh, oh, they were so good. They were so good. I'm starving now, too. Literally, I'm drooling and I have to wipe uh, my mouth as we're talking about all this great food now. <laughs> well, well, Barry, we love to talk about food on the show. I think we've gotten we, probably uh, 20 or so episodes where we just talked about food uh, on the show. And roughly 90 percent of our opening show questions are about Texas food. Um, so the best food, the best food that I've ever had, uh, the best restaurant meal I've ever had in Texas uh, Barry, have you ever heard of the chef named Dean Fearing? I have, actually, yes. Yeah, so Dean Fearing used to be the head chef of the famous the mansion at Turtle Creek in Dallas, which is a high-end restaurant in Dallas. Uh, but he opened his own restaurant a couple of years ago called Fearing. Uh, and I had a gift card from my company, and it was a $200 gift card for some referrals I'd done for AT&T. And uh, this was back in 2009, uh, 2008, 2009. And I decided to take my wife, and, and uh, we were just been married for a year, and my parents out to dinner. And my dad's not a big, fancy food eater. Uh, but Dean Fearing's specialty is upscale Texas food. Uh, and he has this menu that's phenomenal. Um, and we went to this restaurant, and 
we spent every penny of that $200 gift card plus more uh, on this food. But we we started with a sampler of jumbo griddled jumbo lump, lump crab cakes, a barbecue short rib enchilada, uh, cumin carrot salad, and crispy two-bite lobster tacos. And then we proceeded on with our main course. And my meal was, if I remember what it was, and this was back before I could not eat corn anymore, uh, and I could tolerate some spicy food, but this was a maple black peppercorn-soaked buffalo tenderloin on grits with greens and a butternut squash taquito. And it was probably the best bites of food I've ever stuck in my mouth. It was just remarkable food. And then I think we had a dessert, and it was crazy dessert. The chef came out. To, you know, the owner, Dean Fearing, came out to a- ask us how we were doing, uh, which is to me the mark of a really high quality uh, restaurant is when the, o- the owner and the chef comes out and, at- and he talked to every diner in the restaurant. So uh, Dean Fearing is representing Texas well in the the fine dining, high cuisine, uh, new, new cuisine uh, field. And, and Mike, so the background is very works for open table. So he knows restaurants. Uh, he I, I knows gotta, restaurants very well, and you know, plus he loves food. I got a I got a hint of that that coming off. And yeah, you you sent me that. Yeah, so I I think that there's a, certainly you could do a a fine dining road trip through uh, Texas, but you could oh, yeah. also offset that with our barbecue tour of Texas, and you could offset that with our Texas brewery tour of Texas, and then you could visit all of the wonderful vineyards here. And, you know, we could tie you up for five or six years just going place to place. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and you'd Barry, never go to bed hungry. Yeah. And Barry, one thing you'd have to do is that to go to Brenham to go get Bluebell ice cream, because I don't know if they have Bluebell up your way. They do, uh, actually. We do have oh, Bluebell. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, was, there you go. And coincidentally, we actually, there is a town Bluebell, which is about 15 minutes away where my wife works. Um, so yeah, we do have Bluebell, but I, I like the idea. It's uh, I always say that uh, if I ever win the lottery, which everybody says if I ever win the lottery, but I always say if I ever win the lottery, I am going to go see the NBA in every town that has a team. I'm going to visit every theme or amusement park, and then I'm going to try to hit as many restaurants three, four times a day for the rest of my life. There you go. Well, if, if you do that, Call me when you get to Dallas. We'll go to a Mavericks game. We'll go to Six Flags, and we'll get all the best deals in the, in the <laughs> Deal. <area. laughs> uh, well, so today we have a very special treat. Uh, we have one of my favorite podcast hosts out in the podcasting world, uh, Mr. Barry Rose, who is the co-host of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. This is a podcast that is about wrestling, but it's about a whole lot of other, other things besides wrestling. Uh, it's about food. It's about pop culture. Uh, it's about movies. Uh, it's about life. And uh, so Barry is the co- the co-host of this show, uh, and I really love this show. It's one of my favorite podcasts out there. And I asked Barry to come on because Barry has a unique specialty. Barry is one of the great experts on professional wrestling and specifically professional wrestling from the great state of Florida. So, Barry, welcome to the show. Welcome to Texas, virtually. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely, too. And, uh, you know, it's there is such a great history between the state of Florida and Texas. And I always say, you know, one of the questions, I've been a wrestling fan now for, uh, geez, let me do the math on this. I guess this is my 48th year 
And uh, I think I'm just hitting my 48th year, which is amazing. I'm only 42 years old, so go figure that. <laughs> but it is uh, it, people, you know, one of the questions, okay, if you didn't grow up in Florida, which other wrestling, professional wrestling territory would you have liked to have seen? Would you have liked to have been a, a part of? Uh, and for me, it's an easy answer. It's the Amarillo. It's the West Texas Territory. You know, it was one of these things that there was such a great crossover between West Texas and uh, the state of Florida. But at the same time, all of the coverage that came out of West Texas and Amarillo, especially in the 70s, in the early 70s, when Dory Funk Sr. was still alive. And you would hear these stories of Texas death matches going, you know, 40 falls and something like three hours and go, how is this possible? How did this actually take place? So I would sit there as a little kid and I would read the magazines and I would just, you know, I, man, could could my parents take me out to El Paso for a vacation? They never did. You know, it was always uh, Disney World or, you know, or Ohio for some reason. But I always wanted to go to Amarillo uh, and see pro professional wrestling. Yeah. Well, so so, Barry, you, you grew up in Florida and I'm assuming that this is I, I, I know this, but for our fans uh, and our listeners, this how, how did you get interested in wrestling as a young, young lad way back in the 1970s? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of us will have a similar answer. Mine just has a little bit of a twist to it, but it was through my father. Uh, my father was born and raised, which is this would explain the Columbus, Ohio thing. My father was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, and was a semi-professional basketball player. Uh, he played for a team out there and the, he used to go to the same gym that a lot of the wrestlers went to. Uh, Al Haft was the promoter in Columbus, Ohio in the 40s and the 50s. And uh, he would go to the same gym and he got to know guys like the great Mephisto, Frankie Kane and Ray Stevens and Ruffy Silverstein and a whole bunch of these guys. So whenever any of these wrestlers came to Florida, he would go to the matches to say hello and to see these guys. And in 1971, he took me, and, and I know we saw the great Mephisto, Frankie Kane, and we saw Ray Stevens. I think it was about a year later, and he introduced me to them, and uh, I was so intrigued by it. You know, I, I think being seven, eight years old, my exposure to television, and realized too, I'm of the age where we only had four channels. So, you know, it, it was whatever I was watching, which was probably I Love Lucy or something like that on television. All of a sudden, I'm thrust into this world of professional wrestling, much larger than life. And I mean, it's it was the most obscure, obscene, bizarre thing I guess I had ever seen. Again, my world was essentially Saturday morning cartoons or I Love Lucy. And all of a sudden, you've got guys, you know, beating the, the crap out of each other and, and doing all this bizarre stuff. And I was just completely intrigued by it. So uh, it became, you know, growing up in Miami, Miami Beach, where I did grow up, we didn't have a lot when it came to professional sports. We had the Miami Dolphins, who had the perfect season uh, in in 72. We had 
uh, a couple of years before that, we had the ABA with the Miami Floridians with Rick Barry, and then we had college sports, but we didn't have professional baseball, hockey, you know, uh, basketball, anything like that. So Miami Beach was the constant for professional wrestling. It was 51 weeks out of the year. It was every Wednesday night at eight o'clock, and you could count on it no matter what. And if your father was uh, a good father, as my father certainly was, then you would make the drive and go to West Palm Beach, which was less than an hour away, and Fort Lauderdale on Friday night, which was 45 minutes away. So a lot of weeks, especially as I got older, there were three cards a week for me that I was able to attend. So it was, A, it was a great childhood if you're a professional wrestling fan, but at the same time, uh, it began you know, it really indoctrinated me into it and began this lifelong love affair and obsession that I have with professional wrestling. Yeah, that's awesome. So, and so this was the, this was the championship wrestling from Florida, uh, from the seventies, right? It was correct. Yeah. And so the, and the TV show was on Saturday afternoon, Saturday mornings. Yeah. So it, it, you know, depending on the city and this was actually an issue for me as well. And I'll explain why, but so growing up in Florida, so I, I was really fortunate. I grew up on a beach. I literally grew up on 158th street and Collins Avenue. Uh, and the beach was right there. So professional wrestling aired at 12 noon. And unfortunately, even as a kid, Professional wrestling often cut into my my Saturday plans, which were to go over to the beach and go swimming or, you know, cause some sort of trouble on the beach because I was a, a rambunctious kid. But uh, but yes, it aired on Saturday. And then there was a repeat coming out of Lauderdale that I think was Sunday nights. And that was the one that I tried to catch. Some people do remember this time period. Other people like uh, from just a, even just a short generation later. You know, they don't remember the the so-called territory era of wrestling. They remember more the the rise of cable wrestling on TBS and on USA Network uh, for, you know, the NWA and for uh, the obviously you know, the WWF in the in the 1980s. But so let's talk a little bit about Texas and Florida. What, what do we mean by the Texas and Florida territories? Yeah, absolutely, too. So the, it, what, what we mean by that was so before the expansion occurred, uh, which was late 83 into early 84, every uh, there were different territories, there were different regions and different promotions. And Texas was, I mean, one of the biggest. And I mean, hey, it's a gigantic state, first off, but you had several promotions uh, throughout the state. San Antonio through Joe Blanchard, Jolton Joe Blanchard, the father of uh, one of the four horsemen, Tully Blanchard, ran the promotion in San Antonio for years. Houston had Paul Bosch. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area had Fritz von Erich, uh, the Funks, and then later Dick Murdoch and Blackjack Mulligan were running West Texas. So at any given moment, you had four different promotions in one state that that didn't that didn't cross over. They they weren't working uh, in opposition to each other. They had you know the state was big enough where it could support that. So you know in Texas had four. Florida only had one. Georgia had one. Tennessee had a couple. Tennessee had Memphis, and then Knoxville had its own promotion. Mm-hmm. So you know I, I think I, I forget what the number was, but I believe in the seventies there was something like. 
30 something promotions yeah, full-time territories. Yeah, yeah, full-time territories. And we look at New York, which is what the WWE is. And originally it was the WWWF, and they really were a smaller territory. It was even though they were considered because they were in the market of the northeast of the US, uh, it was really only four or five states. You know, it wasn't a worldwide promotion, unlike the National Wrestling Alliance, which oversaw all of Texas. It oversaw Florida, Georgia, Memphis, the Carolinas, you know. So uh, it was a great time to be a fan because, you know, whenever I traveled as a kid, my parents would take me to Georgia. I was able to go see Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was completely different than what I was seeing in Florida. Yeah, you had multiple generations of people watching shows. You could be in the same state and watch four different shows or three different shows that were totally different from each other. Or you could be in a state like like a Mississippi or Alabama where you had, you know, like Alabama is a you know, relatively small state. You had within your reach probably eight, nine different wrestling promotions that were within a couple of hours drive if you really wanted to see. But at the time with the way TV was, you really you could only really pick up the shows that you, you could pick up with your antenna. So you might could you, you could pick up your local show and maybe maybe just maybe if you were in northern Alabama, you might pick up the Nashville show or maybe the Georgia show uh, until cable came along. Yeah, I, I think one of the cool things, too, and again, you know, so I, I'm going to be 56 in just a few weeks, and I did start in uh, 1971, but whenever my parents, like, we would go to the Great Smoky Mountains for a vacation, so we made sure that we were going to Knoxville to see professional wrestling, which was about 25 minutes away. So as much as my mother didn't love that on vacation, uh, I can tell you as a kid, I for me, it was everything, because, you know, all these guys that I had read about Mag magazines i was able to now go see live so you know it, that, that's one thing too if i look if i had a time machine it's kind of like winning the lottery right but if i had a time machine i'd want to go back in time and, and just start to travel the territories who was eddie graham and how were the funk family and eddie graham so connected um how were the funks integral to florida wrestling i mean i know who terry funk is but uh who's this eddie graham guy <laughs> uh, you, you've asked either the right or wrong person that <laughs> question. So, <laughs> so first off, in keeping this in uh, the show on schedule, uh, that is a multi-part question you just asked. But, but let me go back to the history. So, Eddie Graham uh, was born Eddie Gossett in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but really cut his teeth working in West Texas for Dory Funk Sr. Uh, he used the name Rip Rogers, uh, not to be confused with uh, the other wrestler, Rip Rogers, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, uh, who on a national stage. But Eddie was out there, was a young man, and really learned a lot. And Eddie, Eddie Graham, uh, former president of the NWA, he was the guy that essentially ran the state of Florida for wrestling and is considered one of the brightest minds in in the history of professional wrestling. But he cut his teeth out in West Texas for Dory Funk Sr. And uh, he spent several, several months or years out there. And uh, I think Dory took him underneath his wing, Dory Sr. And a lot of the values 
uh, that he learned out there regarding professional wrestling, he brought to Florida. So a lot of things like, uh, you know, you had the Cal Farley's boys ranch out there, uh, which, you know, Dory Funk senior was a major contributor for Eddie came to Florida and Eddie started his own. There was the Eddie Graham, you know, boys ranch out here. And then it became the Florida sheriff boys ranch. So a lot of the things that he learned from Dory brought to the state of Florida and it, I, the state of Florida, the promotion in some ways was kind of modeled after what was taking place in West Texas. Yeah. And it was, you know, Dory Funk was a, was a journeyman wrestler for in the, the 19, I guess the 1940s and the 1950s, uh, who then bought into the Amarillo territory uh, with a guy named Doc Sarpolis. Uh, and they really kind of grew it. It was kind of just a, uh, an outlier territory from the Dallas booking office and uh, in the, in the thirties and forties and Dory took over and, and got TV and really he was most famous for just being, like you said, such a freaking tough guy. Like he was, everybody was, everybody was sure that Dory Funk senior was the toughest guy that walked the earth. He was the, their, their main championship. I think in Florida, wasn't it the brass knuckles championship? It was in Amarillo. The main championship in Amarillo was the Brass Knuckles Championship. Yeah, I, it wasn't the main, but it was certainly used. I think the main was the uh, the international title, yeah. and then yeah. And I, but but to that point, Eddie brought a Brass Knuckles title to the state of Florida. Right. So and, there there really was this model after what he had seen in West Texas, and especially in the early formative years of championship wrestling from Florida, he, he almost used the entire blueprint from West Texas. Right. And that's, that's, what's interesting is that, is that all of these guys really sort of settled the, what they back in that time, when a guy would buy into a territory, a wrestler would buy into a territory and then it was called, it was more than homesteading. He was, he was buying in, he was becoming invested in that region and in that promotion and then you didn't have to travel around to make money. They 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 made money by you know made a living by running the territory. And and I think that that sort of kind of cascade happened pr- fairly quickly in the 1950s and the 1960s with Dory Funk Sr. and then later Eddie Graham. I, I know Fritz von Erich came in to Dallas in the in the 1980s. Um, Paul Bosch he he had to retire due to a car accident in the 1950s and 60s. So. All of these professional wrestlers really then locked in on different promotions throughout the country. Uh, and, you know, Eddie, like you said, Eddie's model was was Dory Funk Sr.'s promotion of that hard hitting style, that real, real style of professional wrestling where it was tough guys and legitimate athletes. Uh, and Eddie was one of those. He was he was a tough guy and he was a, such a smooth athlete you know in in the in the business uh, yeah, and knew I, all these holds and everything i think part of it too i i think so if we talk about professional wrestling especially in the 1980s with the explosion and the national expansion it became more of a uh, a traveling sideshow it became like the circus it, or the ice capades or something that goes town to town but it was really more show and back in you know, you look at the 1960s, especially between Amarillo and the state of Florida, and there was no show. It was hard hitting. Uh, there was no flash. You know, guys didn't come out. Guys weren't pretty. Guys weren't wearing 
silver capes and robes and things like that. Guys were coming out and they were beating the crap out of each other. Mm-hmm. I, I remember in, in Terry Funk's autobiography, he talked about there was a tag team that came in and they were supposed to be these tough guys. And Dory Sr. went up to him and basically he decided to test them out in the locker room and he beat the crap out of one of them. And the other one got got the upper hand on him and knocked him out. And when he woke up, he fired the one guy and he and he kept the other guy who had knocked him out. Right. <laughs> yep, correct. So that's that's a different, yeah, different world of wrestling. As much as some people like Florida for things like vacations and, uh, you know, places to find used auto parts. I would like to know, you know, you, you have somebody like uh, the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. You know, he, he came out of Austin, but he really was a big part of what happened in Florida, wasn't he? Yeah, he Dusty was... So the Dusty Rhodes babyface turn, Dusty had been around uh, since the early 70s off and on and came in as a heel, came in as a bad guy. And in 1974, he was so he was maybe a stone cold Steve Austin, you know, 20, 25 years before. And he was even though he was a bad guy and was certainly being portrayed he was so over and so popular with the fans who still booed him, but everybody was just taken with him. So Eddie Graham switched him from the bad guy to the good guy, from the, the heel to the baby face. And at that point, he became arguably the most popular wrestler in the world at that point. You know, there are, you can sit here and say, okay, Dusty Rhodes, Andre the Giant. Bruno San Martino. I would say those were probably the three most popular wrestlers in the world, at least the United States in the mid 1970s, and especially the second half of the 70s. So Dusty was an integral part. You know, he was uh, arguably, maybe not even arguably, the most popular wrestler to ever work the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he wasn't the toughest guy. No, uh, he was, but he had that, I mean, Go to YouTube, people, and go watch Dusty Rhodes interviews, and you will see the charisma that Dusty Rhodes had. I mean, Dusty Rhodes is the living embodiment of putting butts in the seats and making people turn on the television and making people want to buy a ticket to just see him. Um, and, and you know, it was that way in the 80s. It was that way even in some in the 90s. But I can't imagine how popular he was in Florida in the 1970s. He was, it was, you know, dusty was everything too. And, you know, from a personal standpoint, his act got a little tiring to me, uh, within the you know, a few years. And I always preferred, I guess, uh, more w- what came across as more legitimate professional wrestling. So guys like Jack Briscoe, Billy Robinson, I was a huge Terry Funk and still am a huge Terry Funk fan to this day. Uh, and you know, Dusty was a showman. Dusty was, uh, a guy that could come out, could light up any audience, could get himself over. Uh, and w- you know, it was very exciting for me. It was, uh, it was repetitive in seeing Dusty. A lot of his matches were very similar, but at the same time, it's very hard to argue with the success because week after week fans were buying tickets to see Dusty. Eddie knew that, uh, which is why he kept Dusty on top for so long. That's kind of the story of Dusty, but, um, you know, I mentioned Terry Funk earlier. Um, he was one of Dusty's main rivals. Am I correct in that? 
I mean, I'm I'm an amateur at this, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't need to clarify that for me, Scott. I, <laughs> I already picked that up. Uh, yeah, he was, and uh, I got to say, Terry Funk was a guy that was really ahead of his time as well. And again, when you when you've got the pedigree, and and certainly there was an early education that came from uh, from his father. Terry Funk was uh, just a guy that whether you saw him in 1974 or you saw him in 1994, you were still being wowed by Terry Funk. And I, you know, so I'm going to assume that I've seen a a few thousand matches live. I, I don't get to the arenas to see wrestling as much as I used to, especially now that my son is in college. Uh, but, you know, if I was to do it, I'd say, OK, I've seen a, a few thousand matches live. The greatest match I ever saw was the night that Terry Funk won the National Wrestling Alliance heavyweight title from Jack Briscoe, which was December 10th, 1975. I sat ringside with my dad. And, uh, you know, right now, if you watch professional wrestling, the world title really doesn't mean anything. The title changes hands. It might change hands once every two or three months, maybe, you know, three, four times a year, something like that. Back in the territory days, the world title changed hands once every two years, once every four years. To see a world title change was like winning the lottery. You know, it was like uh, being invited to uh, see Willy Wonka or something like that. It was just the biggest deal so to me terry funk will always be in my top five favorites uh but just an incredible performer all the way around and a guy that never never phoned it in terry funk every match you saw terry funk he was a hundred percent vested in giving fans their money's worth and the thing about Terry Funk was different than Dory, his older brother, who had won the who had had the NWA title a couple of years before. Uh, Terry Funk wrestles different for every single opponent. Every opponent, Terry is a he's a, he's a chameleon in a lot of ways. He he's he's got such a range of from technical wrestler to the one of the best babyface good guy wrestlers you could find to one of the most insane lunatic bad guys that you can find he he wrestled to his opponent uh and i think that's what gave him such such longevity and you know those of us that are here that are not wrestling fans and those of us that are are you know we know terry funk from uh, obviously one of the great movies of all time roadhouse uh and some of the different movies that he was in um but you know it's that charisma that he brought and that capability i think that he brought to everything that he did, I think that made him such a good opponent for Dusty uh, because he had a rival charisma. He had a capability of being just as charismatic in a different way as Dusty was. Oh, I mean, without a doubt too. And and I think one of the keys to Terry Funk was that he had a connection and that that's really what it comes about. Dusty had a connection to the fans. Terry also had a connection in a different way in that Terry could, you know, by the time Terry walked from the dressing room to the ring, three quarters of the building was ready just to go and strangle him. 
you know, it didn't take him long to, to get what we, you know, is called in, in professional wrestling heat. And he had incredible heat and he would insult people on the way to the ring. Uh, and by the time he got in the ring, people were throwing things at him. So uh, just an incredible, incredible performer. Yeah. Love Terry Funk. Yep. Um, so I want to talk about another famous family. So there's interesting that there's so many famous families that came through Florida. You know, the Grams lived in Florida. Uh, the Funks were an important part of Florida. Uh, you talked about Jack Briscoe and his brother, uh, Gerald Briscoe. Another family that was famous in Florida uh, was another Texan family. And this is the Wyndham family, starting with Bob Blackjack Mulligan, uh, Wyndham, and then his sons, Barry and Kendall. And they are from my own hometown where I was born, Sweetwater, Texas. Yeah, so you're talking about, you know, and and uh, I should say, too, uh, I, I do have a connection to Barry and Kendall Wyndham, uh, which I'm very excited about, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. But uh, so how that really took place, we saw Blackjack Mulligan very sporadically in the 70s. And I want to say it was like 78 or 79. He was coming in and working big shows. St. Petersburg was the big show. So you had towns in Florida, uh, like Miami, West Palm Beach, Jacksonville, that were run on a weekly basis. St. Pete was once a month on a Saturday night, and it was considered, quote unquote, the big show. And this is where they would bring outside talent. It drew probably the biggest crowds of any, you know, upwards of 10,000. And uh, they would bring in guys like Blackjack Mulligan, and they would bring in select heels to face Dusty, and Blackjack was one of them. And then we saw Blackjack when he returned a few years later. Uh, I'm trying to think who came first, and I actually Barry came first. So Barry Windham showed up in 1980, and uh, he was rail thin. You know, he, tall kid, good-looking kid, rail thin, couldn't have weighed more than 180 pounds, and uh, was really great because he was getting his butt kicked on a weekly basis. And he would go out, and that that's kind of how they would build stars in those days. Guys would come out, they would get their butts kicked, and every week they would make a small improvement. And get a little more offense in. And this continued. And obviously, Barry Windham, within four years of starting, was probably, you know, top three workers in the U.S. for professional wrestling. So he really was able to grasp it uh, and became such a star. And then we saw Kendall in 85. And I want to say Blackjack showed up. I think it was 83 that Blackjack, Blackjack showed up. And uh you know, it was kind of cool because you had father and son there and then Kendall showing up in, uh, in 85. And then you had all three, you know, you had the father and both of his sons there. So a really strong legacy. Uh, and Barry Windham is a guy that, you know, I think most of his exposure, most people know him as a member of the four horsemen. Uh, but you know, as a wrestler prior to that, and especially, as a strong baby face. And there's a match that's available on YouTube and it's from one of the battle of the belts, which took place in, in Florida and it's Barry Windham versus Ric Flair. And if you watch this match, it's, it's through the roof and you know, I don't get excited. I don't know if that's the right word either, but I, there's not a whole lot that I get, uh, 
you know, where I jump up and down and go, Oh my God, look at this match. Look at this. Uh, but honestly, uh, when you see this match, it's, it's almost textbook perfect in the way that it was constructed. The only thing I didn't like about that match was the ending. Uh, but Barry Windham through the roof and blackjack, I think when we saw Blackjack and we just had this discussion on our podcast, which was Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, we had on Bob Roop with us this week and we were talking about Blackjack. And when we saw Blackjack, he was on, you know, he he was in like the eighth inning of his career at that stage. Uh, He was definitely on the wind down. So he wasn't the same guy he had been, say, three or four years earlier when he was working in the mid-Atlantic area. But there was still a presence to Blackjack Mulligan. So, uh, so yeah, extremely cool that we were able to have all three of the Wyndhams the, in, in, in the state of Florida. Yeah, and they were proudly Texan, too, because they were, you know, Blackjack Mulligan had a famous cowboy gimmick, uh, or, sorry, cowboy persona, which for gimmick is the, the character that he played. But he really was a big, raw-boned, massive, raw-boned Texan. Uh, Barry, by the by the time you talk about wrestling, Ric Flair in the mid eighties was, uh, really was, he's six foot five and he was filled out a lot and just handsome guy wearing cowboy boots. So, you know, that's the thing is that these guys were, correct me if I'm wrong, but this was really towards the dying days of the Florida territory. And really Barry Windham was the, the big good guy star for the territory towards its last couple of years. Right. Yeah, it was too. So there's a, you know, people will point in different directions on who's responsible for the death of Florida. But I think you can look to the year 1984. And uh, is it coincidental that that's where wrestling became national at that point? I don't think so. But, you know, it's I, I think it had been in the works for a little while. But 1984 uh, I think began a downturn in the state of Florida and that continued into 85, 86 until its death in 87. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, yeah, but Eddie Graham had been such, had been the owner of the territory and he had, uh, a lot of financial problems, uh, health problems, and eventually took his own life in the early eighties. And that really didn't help the territory at all. Yeah, and there's a lot of speculation as to why he did it, and I'm not one who's going to sit here and speculate. Uh, but at the same time, it was January of 1985 that he committed suicide. And at that point, the territory, the state of Florida, was pretty much you know, it was on its way to uh, a, a slow, painful death because the glory days were now four, five, six years behind them. Uh, but a lot of the territories were dying at that point as well. You know, a lot had moved on and uh, Crockett had gobbled up. Uh, essentially Georgia had gobbled up the Carolinas, which he had been promoting and eventually did take over Florida uh, because Crockett expanded, became the NWA. Then, you know, the WWF uh, was coming into Florida at that point. But Texas also, San Antonio was done by that point. West Texas had been done for years at that, that point. And the only real, real promotion would have been Fritz's, which was Dallas, which, you know, was seeing good and bad days in the mid 80s, depending on what was going on. So everybody was paying the price. So much info. Uh, um well i let let's take it back to another texas family you know we did a big in-depth episodes talking about the history of the von erics uh both fritz and the and all the boys and everything that's going on there and it was really an interesting look at 
this Texas dynasty. And, you know, there's this connection that you're drawing of, and we talked about this in when we did our wrestling episode too, you know, connecting these promotions and pieces. But, uh, you know, how did the, the, the mighty Von Erichs, the probably the most famous family in Texas, uh, you know, before Walker, Texas Ranger was on the air, obviously. You know, what is that relationship that they had to Florida? What, where did these Texas, how did these Texas guys get from here to there? And, and how does the rest of the world look on them, especially Florida wrestling? Yeah, too. And I got to say, too, I love Walker, Texas Ranger. Uh, that is just that that is just I can I forget what channel it's on in Philly, but it, it it's in repeats and it's a uh, such a fun show. So the Von Erics didn't have what I would classify uh at least up until 1982, much of a relationship with the state of Florida. And a lot of that was based off of there was this and I don't even know if it was I was going to say there was this unwritten rivalry between the Funks and the Von Erics. And, you know, for years, uh, if the Funks went to Dallas, they were the heels. But if the Von Erics went to West Texas, they were the heels. So uh, it, it really interesting that in in the state, you know, one city to the next, a wrestler could either be the good guy or the bad guy, depending on which city they're in. So uh, there wasn't a massive connection. I would say that Fritz von Erich was the NWA world's uh, the NWA president. He was the president of the National Wrestling Alliance after Eddie Graham had been. But in 1982, it was determined that David Von Erich was in big consideration to become uh, the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. And I can't say if this was a long-term plan. Uh, my gut tells me it was short-term, that they were going to give the title to David, and he would hold it for maybe three months, maybe six months, who knows, maybe even a year, depending on what happens. Uh, so it was determined that they were going to send him to Florida. They were going to get him out of Texas because he's loved in Texas. And they were going to send him to Florida to be a bad guy, to be the heel. And Dory Funk Jr. was the booker at the time. And the booker is the guy that kind of comes up with the, the programs, the feuds. He'll bring in wrestlers. So they decided that since Dory was kind of running the show in a sense, that they were going to send David to the state of Florida to learn how to work as a heel and to do it underneath the tutelage of Dory. And I got to tell you, I don't think David Von Erich had ever worked as a heel prior to this. He was through the roof and great. 1982, in my opinion, David Von Erich owned it. He was the highlight. He was the highlight of the early 80s for me. He was this sniveling kind of weaselly heel but yet solid in the ring he was really good in the ring and he would come out and he would have this uh this roach clip with a feather on it and he would he would put it in his hair and he would come out and he had a way of getting heat from the crowd and it was kind of amazing because again Maybe a trip to Japan, he had been a heel, but I don't think in the U.S. he had ever done that. And he had a way of just getting people so upset and so angry, and he was so successful in what he did. And this was really all predicated 
on the fact that he was in major consideration to be the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. So uh, he stayed for several months. At that time, uh, Kevin and, and, and Kerry also came in, and they didn't come in for any great length of time, but they came in and they did a few shots also as heels. But neither one was nearly successful in that role as David was. And uh, before David left, he wound up turning on Dory, became popular, became a babyface, and then he left the state, and that was the last we ever saw of him. And I think he was... He died, passed away uh, within five, six months of, of leaving the state of Florida. Yeah, you can find those videos on YouTube, and it's pretty remarkable because, mm, I mean, I guarantee you Texans did not know that this was happening. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I mean, the, the Von Erichs were always the good guys when I was yeah. a kid. So. Always. I think you there know. was a spin on it, too. If if I remember correctly, there was something that was said by uh, Bill Mercer, the great Bill Mercer, who I believe is still alive uh, in, in his mid-90s at this point. And I believe that he said something to the effect that uh, David Von Erich has been getting booed in Florida, but it's got something to do with Texas pride and the Floridians are not really embracing that. <laughs> yeah. So it was a, yeah, exactly. It's a great way to put all the heat on us in, in Florida, which is genius, you know, to be able to do it like that. But that was a common thing. You know, it was very similar when uh, Tommy Rich, uh, you know, turned heel at one point and they, they tried to cover it up and, you know, and say that, oh, you know, I think this was taking place in Georgia, but they said, oh, in Tennessee, they're, they're, you know, they, they've turned on Tommy because he, he considers himself from Georgia now or something ludicrous like that, but it worked. People believed it. Yeah. The, the, the video is great. He's, he plays sort of a douchey, a douchebag, basically. He's, he's a, like you said, sniveling douchebag. Like I'm better yeah, than all exactly. of you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a great video. There's one video where, like you said, uh, Carrie and Kevin are there. And I think they even had a clip from like a clip of a tape from Fritz talking about how great David was, uh, on the, on the Florida show. And, and David has got this roach cliff and he's clipping. He's got tie dye and he's talking about how great he is. And Carrie's just standing there and, you know, Carrie Bon Eric, who's, this gigantic muscle guy, just Adonis looking, good looking guy. And he's got these aviator sunglasses on and he's just sitting there looking like you know, the biggest, the, with his, with his collar popped, looking like the biggest douchebag in the world, backing up his older <laughs> yeah, brother. But, but, you know, I mean, I guess if you go back to the history of it, uh, you know, that's what Fritz literally started off as, you know, the heel. Oh yeah. And he then he was a Nazi. Yeah. He was, he was a Nazi. <laughs> he was, he doesn't get any, yeah, he, was, he was, he was biggest. He, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You'll never be yeah. as bad a guy as your dad was kids. Know that. Yeah. Well, and so the, I think the reason they did that, you know, was to show because the, the, the NWA champion was touring. He had to tour to different territories and depending on what territory he went to, if the top guy was a good guy, then you had to be a bad guy to wrestle him. Uh, and vice versa, if the, if the top guy in the territory was a bad guy, then you had to wrestle as a baby face. So, you know, that was the, the knock on the Von Erics is that never worked heel. Uh, and uh, David, I mean, you watch those YouTube videos, David knocked it out of the park. David would have been a phenomenal heel in any territory he went to. 
You'd have to think too, if, uh, again, he, you know, he died shortly after and had he lived, I think his career would have been as a heel. I don't see it as, I mean, certainly in, in around Dallas, he still would have been a baby face, but I think, I think he could have easily, if he had not become world's heavyweight champion, he could have gone to Crockett. Uh, he could have gone to the WWF and he could have been a main event heel in both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he would. He would only be, uh, he was born 1958, so he was only, he wasn't even 30, you know, when he died. Right. He was really young. Right. Crazy. <laughs> I'm just going to ask you about some other notable Texas wrestlers that uh, did a turn in Florida. Um, there's Dick Murdoch, Bruiser Brody, Ernie Ladd, Paul Jones, and Scott Casey. I don't recognize any of these names. So, um, what? Really? You don't know who er- Ernie Ladd is? No, I don't. I'm he was sorry. a big guy in Houston. I, but maybe so, but uh, I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> Mattress Smack never wrestled, as far as I know. I no, no, I can't. See, now we've entered territory. Barry has no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, he was a he's a on he's a Houston furniture salesman uh, that's notable for local. Local TV commercials. He he really will save you money. Yeah, guys, guys, can I can I break your heart too with Ernie Ladd? He was born in in Louisiana, actually. Ah, I, I, think. I think it's disputed. <laughs> he is he is from Orange, Texas, which is where my wife is from. So in this, so he went the, to high school. So we consider him a Texan. All right. The, well, this is I'm going to tell you. I, yeah, I was good. just going to interject that um, there's many people that we have talked about on this show that may have been born elsewhere, but uh-huh. they're still from Texas. Yes. So. That's a, well, to, to that point, so he, I, I have his his Rolodex card from CWF. And whenever a wrestler came to wrestle in Florida, they had to fill out a card. It was name, birth date, uh, who I would contact if there was a problem. And it always lists city of birth. And I pulled up Bernie's because I do have his card. And uh, he did make Houston, Texas his home. Uh, he lived in Houston. Uh, and But he was born, apparently, on November 28th, 1938, in a town called Rayville, Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, so, which I'm not familiar with, and I know that he made Louisiana his home uh, in his later years. But I always thought he was a, a Texan. But to your point, exactly, you could be born anywhere, but if you call Texas your home, I guess you're a Texan. Yeah, and as as they, as the Jim Cornette says, his his feet covers the ground he walks on. He was right. a, he was a he was a great he was a great Texan so and I think he he was yeah he's one of the guys but all of the the rest of these guys were are Texans were born in Texas so tell us uh, a little bit about Dick Murdoch just a yes. tiny bit Dick Murdoch you know so we've been uh, one of the big controversies that we're having on our podcast is we discussed the Wrestling Observer Hall of Fame and I I think this was the third episode that we brought up Dick Murdoch and there are a couple of people that feel like Dick Murdoch is not Hall of Fame worthy to those people I stick my tongue out and I utter some sort of profanity because uh, Dick Murdoch is 100 percent in my opinion, the standard bearer of, of what a professional wrestling hall of fame should be. He was on top in every territory he ever worked. Uh, unless you go towards the, the tail end of his career, 
where you know he wasn't a main event guy anymore. But you, Dick Murdoch was a guy that uh, when he came to your territory, houses went up, the quality of matches were great, and you you want to put him on a similar level to Terry Funk. You know, there's a, a difference there uh, in a couple of ways. But Dick Murdoch, to me, what a talent. What an amazing talent, uh, a guy that, you know, I believe he, he died. He was 49 years old, and I don't think he was done. I, I think we could have seen more uh, from Dick Murdoch. Certainly had what they consider the classic heart attack body. He was a tall guy. He was rangy and had a beer gut. It was like a 24-pack mm-hmm. uh, in that beer gut. So, But what a talent. Another one similar to Terry Funk understood the psychology of professional wrestling could walk out and could immediately get massive boos or massive cheers just by looking at the crowd. So to me, Dick Murdoch, one of the all time greats, Bruiser Brody as well. And we saw Bruiser Brody. Uh, Bruiser Brody was spectacular when we saw him. We saw him as Frank Goodish and he showed up in the last week of 1975, made his debut on television squashed Rocky Johnson on television and won the Florida heavyweight title in his first match. And Uh, really, let me me pause you, Barry, because while these guys may not know who Rocky Johnson is, I guarantee you these, everybody listening to this, this show knows who Rocky Johnson's son grew up to be. Yeah, absolutely. He grew up to be uh, better known as The Rock, Dwayne Johnson. So Rocky Johnson and Rocky Johnson's got a great I can tell you a great Rocky Johnson story. He's got a great legacy uh, in Texas. He worked for in Houston for Paul Bosch for many, many years, also worked uh, for Fritz. But I knew Rocky extremely well through my father uh, when I was growing up. And it's a friendship that continues to this day. And uh, I would actually go and stay at Rocky's house uh, with Dwayne when Dwayne was a kid. <laughs> and uh, uh, and they had a dog. They had a poodle. And I still have all the photos. And the poodle's name was Tex because they had gotten him when they <laughs> lived in Houston. So, uh, yeah, really kind of okay. amazing. I wouldn't have until we started talking about it. I wouldn't have remembered that. But uh but yeah, but he was Rocky's got a great legacy. But for for Bruiser Brody, Frank Goodish, uh, that was unheard of that a guy that we didn't we didn't know who he was. He had no mainstream publicity at that stage. He had not been in any sort of big promotion. He didn't get any exposure in the magazines. And all of a sudden, this guy, we didn't know who he was, shows up and beats our champion in like two minutes on television and wins. What's <laughs> happening here? It was crazy. So uh, he had a a pretty good legacy. He stayed for a few months. He lost the title to Thunderbolt Patterson. And then he went up to New York and automatically uh, the name changed. It it was overnight. He became Bruiser Bruiser Brody, which you had said. And apparently that was based off of Killer Kowalski. And uh, that's a name everybody has probably heard of. Uh, Killer Kowalski was also wrestling in Florida at that time and recommended uh, Frank Goodish to the WWF. And he went up and the rest really became history. We then saw him again a few times in the 80s, but a very spectacular performer. One of my favorites in the 80s, uh, Bruiser Brody, without a doubt. And folks can go uh, watch the tragic story of his, uh, quite frankly, his murder. Uh, by a fellow professional wrestler in the 
in the Vice uh, series, Dark Side of the Ring, uh, a remarkable story will infuriate you, uh, even if you're not a professional wrestling fan. Uh, it is a fascinating story, though. So let me double back. I would love to hear you talk about Scott Casey, but also if you could take a minute to mention something about his contemporary, the fantastic Chief Wahoo McDaniel as well, because that was when I was uh, maybe kindergarten age. I got to go to a match in San Antonio and I got to see both of those guys. I got an autograph from from the chief. Uh, It's still at my house, my parents' house in Houston. And it was just it was one of those things of. I'm sure if I saw it now, I would not look at it through the same lens of being five. Yeah, so Wahoo McDaniel is probably, he's probably in my top 10 favorite wrestlers of all time. And what I liked about Wahoo was, uh, Wahoo was a tough guy. There, there, there was no, you know, there, there were certain guys in wrestling that were, uh, not quite tough that may have had a gimmick where they were tough. Wahoo was a tough guy. And, uh, I remember sitting in the West Palm beach auditorium and I'm way up as high as you could get up in the, uh, the rafters and Wahoo's in the ring. And when Wahoo chops somebody, you could hear it all the way up in the rafters. And he was a guy that, uh, he gave his all every single match that I saw. I was such a huge fan. He's got a great legacy. He was a former Miami dolphin. Uh, so he played for my favorite, uh, football team, uh, of all time. And, uh, he, he was, uh, a guy that, you know, he was New York jets. He left, he left football. He, he wrestled in Florida in the sixties, but then he came back in 1978 for this epic run that had him winning uh, the U.S. tag titles with Dusty Rhodes, and he was the Southern champion, but just such a solid performer. And then we saw him again in the 80s. I, it was 1985, and he was the booker. He was the guy that was calling the shots and and coming up with storylines and bringing in his talent. Scott Casey's another one. Scott Casey, uh, a friend of mine, uh, we, we had Scott Casey at our last fan fest, and Scott actually just came out with his autobiography and uh, just a great guy, real personable, real friendly, never got this amazing run in the state of Florida. Certainly had good runs at working San Antonio, but in Florida was always kind of middle of the card, didn't get a lot of programs, but you could always count on a really good match from Scott. That was the thing. And guys liked working with him uh, because he was, you know, he was such a great guy to work with. He would give some, uh, and then he was light as a feather apparently. But uh, yeah, two guys that I think had a great legacy. Scott now living in Arkansas, uh, and Chief Wahoo passed away years ago. I will tell you, though, this was a highlight for me. In 1996, I was living in Orlando, and they had the Cauliflower Alley reunion in Tampa. And it was the only one, I think, that ever took place in Tampa. And uh, I went to it, and at at the dinner table that I was sit- seated at, directly next to me was 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 chief wahoo and to tell you i was nervous was like oh my god like it's wahoo mcdaniel one of my childhood heroes and uh i actually i i brought a program that night and he autographed it where he's on the cover and uh i took a photo with him and we actually talked for a while and we talked about football uh we talked about professional wrestling and uh just you know it's just a, a guy that was just larger than life to me 
Yeah, and Wahoo was not born in Texas, but he was raised in Midland, uh, in West Texas. Uh, and uh, famously, I think we talked about this years ago on our Texas wrestling uh, show, uh, he was his baseball coach in middle school was George H.W. Bush. So, oh, wow. Yeah, we claim Mr. Wa- the Big Chief, Wahoo McDaniel, as one of our own. Um, famous, famous, famous tough guy in wrestling. I think that's uh, that's probably his biggest legacy is just how dadgum tough the guy was. I, I think this too, Sean. I think so. If you're looking at Texas wrestlers, I, I think you can say that maybe that's the legacy that that uh, Texas has had for professional wrestling. You may have had more tough guys coming out of Texas, especially West Texas, than. Any other region. The only other thing I could think of, and certainly Tampa to some degree, uh, maybe Minneapolis. You know, you had some real tough guys coming. You know, the Road Warriors, Rick Rude, Kurt Hennig. You had some tough guys. But, you know, when you look at the guys that came out of Texas, you know, who wasn't tough in -hmm. professional wrestling coming out of Texas? You know, we haven't even talked about, you know, we don't have time to talk about him. But uh, Stan Hansen, legendary professional wrestler a god of wrestling in japan um uh you know and then your one of your good friends who is no longer with us he recently passed away uh number one paul jones uh yeah <sighs> one of the great one of the great under i think underappreciated wrestlers uh in history he really didn't have any big runs in texas but he was super big in in both uh, florida and in uh, what was Later, the uh, you know the the, the Carolina area and uh, and in Georgia as well. Yeah, I think he had a decent run underneath his given name, which was Al Frederick, uh, around sixty two, sixty three, when he was working for Morris Siegel. Yeah, in out of Houston. Yeah, and and Paul Bosch, uh, Paul Jones was a. Uh, you know, I, th- there are there are mistakes that we make in life. And I was writing his autobiography with him and we spent uh, maybe two months on the phone almost every day. And I was recording this. And Paul was a really unique guy. You know, if you like profanity, which I do, Paul would give you uh, out of five words, four of those are going to be profane. <laughs> and he was just he was a great storyteller. He he. He didn't play any political games either. Uh, he, you know, if he felt something, he would tell you. And uh, he had no problem saying it. And I really enjoyed my time with him. During the course of writing that autobiography, my mother passed away. And I then relocated from uh, New York back down to Orlando. And it was also the birth of my second child. My wife was pregnant. So I had to put this on hold. We never picked it up. I probably have 10 or 15 chapters done, but I, I don't have the complete story. And it's such a regret that I never found the time to go back and, and finish up his autobiography. Because Paul Jones, I don't know if you know the story, but came from Port Arthur, Texas. And, uh, was childhood friends with Janis Joplin and Jimmy Johnson, uh, Jimmy Johnson, the great football coach. And uh, Paul claims, and if, you know, I don't know who can dispute it, but Paul claims that he took the virginity of Janis Joplin. And I, I've got this. Did I just hear a mic drop on that one? 
It yeah, sounds like a sorry. mic drop. That was <laughs> <It's> Scotch. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, you know, he uh, he was very he was a very res- where Paul was never respectful. He was actually very respect respectful about the legacy of Janice. But at the same time, uh, he provided great details that I I have to take him at his word and believe what he says. So uh, I would say he was a great Texan, Paul Jones, number one for sure. Well, yeah, he was. Um, so I'm going to close this out. So you talked a little bit about the legacy of Texas wrestling uh, in Florida. So specific to Florida, what what do you feel like is the legacy that Texas Texas gave to Florida and possibly vice versa? Yeah, so I, I mean, from the state of Florida, so our hometown boys, guys like Mike Graham and Steve Kern, uh, and even though Eddie Graham was born in, in Tennessee, he was considered a Floridian, but Texas was our, our main import. I mean, this is where the majority of a lot of the wrestlers came from otherwise. You know, Dusty Rhodes on top for a solid 11 years. You know, that that's almost unheard of in a lot of ways. So in the Funk Brothers, you know, Dory Funk Jr., do the math on this one. Dory Funk Jr. debuted in Florida in 1963 and was still working as the Florida heavyweight champion in 1987. That's absolutely incredible, that kind of a legacy. So, you know, it, to me, it, they're, they're absolutely intertwined, the two territories for wrestling. I don't think the reverse, because I don't think guys from Florida had much of an impact in Texas. Uh, there, there are some one-offs with that, but for the most part, I don't see that. But again, if you were to remove Texans out of the state of Florida from wrestling, I, it wouldn't have been the same. No, the only thing I would just add is that, uh, I mean, this is a, a fantastic look at in a wealth of information. I mean, clearly, we found the expert and got him with us tonight. So just really yeah. appreciative of taking time and sharing it. And uh, glad that you've not only enjoyed uh, Texas wrestling, but Texas food and uh, shared a little Texas culture with us. So thanks for coming on. This is awesome. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, you know, for me, it's uh, when Sean reached out and was like, do you want to talk professional wrestling and and the alliances between Florida and Texas? It was like, yeah, can I have six hours, please? Uh, (laughs) Because I I feel that that's, you know, I can go on for hours upon it. And I generally do uh, on my own podcast. So, yeah. So I, I appreciate it. I appreciate you guys having me on. Well, so Barry, why don't you tell us a little bit about your podcast and also tell us about, as I mentioned earlier, tell us about the fantastic CWF Fan Festival that's coming up very soon. Yeah, absolutely, too. So uh, I'll start with the podcast. I am one half of the Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry podcast. We can be found on the Arcadian Vanguard Network. Uh, You can also find selected interviews with wrestlers on YouTube. Uh, But we've been doing this now. We are 105 episodes in the can. We have never missed an episode through, as we like to say, through weddings, through sicknesses, through marriages. Uh, 
through moves, through colleges, whatever it is, somehow every week we have been able to crank out an episode. It is not for everybody. I will be the first one to tell you it is a hard R-rated theme. Uh, we don't have a lot of filters. Uh, so, uh, But at the same time, if you do like to talk about or if you like to hear two guys talking about professional wrestling, food, movies, music, television, uh, things like that, if you miss the old man show that used to take place with Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, so we're, we're a little similar to that. It's two guys just BSing and, uh, and talking, but wrestling obviously is the common denominator with that. Uh, so years ago with my obsession with Florida wrestling, I had a website and it was called the championship wrestling from Florida archives. And, uh, it was a great website, but as Facebook emerged some 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I said, you know, it'd be a lot more fun if it was interactive instead of me just putting up material on a website. So uh, I let the, the domain die. I didn't renew it. And we got to Facebook. And I'm happy to say we've got uh, between eight and 9,000 members. People show up every day. If you want to learn about the history of uh, wrestling in the state of Florida going back to the 40s up to the 80s, it's definitely the place to, to go. And I was approached a couple of years ago uh, by David Penzer. And David Penzer was a ring announcer with WCW for a decade. And then he went to TNA and he said, hey, have you ever thought of putting on a fan fest, you know, geared towards fans in the state of Florida? And I said, no, I don't think I want to do that. And we went back and forth for six months and I finally committed and boy, am I happy I did. So uh, in the last two and a half years, we have run five fan fests in Tampa. Uh, we're in the, the suburb of Tampa, which is called Lutz. And we're doing our next one in about four weeks. It is taking place on November the 9th. Uh, headlined, it's kind of a Texas theme going with this one. It's headlined by Barry and Kendall Wyndham. So uh, they are riding into town, as we like to say. Uh, joining them will be Dutch Mantell. Uh, and where's Dutch from? Any idea? Oil Trough, Texas. Is that is that a shooter? Well, that's, that... that's his working. That's his All right. gimmick. Well, we're going to go it's with a it. Gimmick, but it's we're going to go one. with it. Yeah. So you got three Texans there. Uh, you got Barry Kendall. You've also got uh, Rocky Johnson that we mentioned. Rocky's autobiography is coming out, co-written with Scott Teal. So Rocky will be there. Joining them will be J.J. Dillon, the manager of champions of the Four Horsemen. Also, the first opponent of Barry Windham, uh, which is coincidental, which I wasn't aware of at the time. Joining them will be Tony Gurria and Larry Hamilton, Thunderbolt Larry Hamilton. So real excited. You can find us on Facebook at CWF Legends Fan Fest. You can also find us Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry also on Facebook or Championship Wrestling from Florida Archives, uh, also on Facebook. Be more than happy to, to see some new faces in any of those groups. And you can also buy tickets to the Fan Fest by going to any one of those three groups. And if you listen back on a couple of uh, episodes ago, maybe, I don't know, quite a while ago, but you'll actually see a review uh, on uh, read on the episode from yours truly on the great movie Sharky's Machine. Uh, yes. Reynolds. So were there, Sean, were there any Texans in Sharky's Machine? Mike, you are the Burt Reynolds expert. Do you remember any Texans in oh, Sharky's boy. Machine? There's got to be at least two. Uh, 
<laughs> and here's the connection too, because Bert was born in Florida. Bert's a Florida guy, so you got Texas. You've got this whole other crossover again. There you go, Bert Reynolds. But yeah, we—it's uh, a great show. I really recommend people listen to it, uh, not with the kids. Yes, uh, it's not—it's not like you know, it, it's not—it's not the—it's not a NC seventeen or anything. But it's a—it is an R-rated R-rated show. There's there's some salty language. How about that? There is absolutely. And if you if you heard this week's show. Uh, yeah, it, it was especially salty in several uh, portions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Barry, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great. We could have talked. I could have talked to you for six more hours. I don't know if Mike and Scott could, but I definitely. You know, there's when you know a little, and then you meet someone who knows a lot. <laughs> so we're well, catching up. But this is really fascinating. I, sh- actually, there's a lot of of uh, pieces to pull apart around this. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. I learned yeah. a heck of a lot tonight. I appreciate it, guys. And if you guys could let me know if uh, if the great Pioneer House is still in Kerrville. Yes. Because uh, it is still there. I, I will unfortunately find... looked it up, and... and I am afraid it is not no, not but... there on... Uh, I can't find any information about it. On yes, there. I'll find out. But another a friend of a friend, a friend of mine... A f- a friend of a friend has a has a fine dining establishment in Kerrville today, and runs kind of a they have a hotel and a and a fine dining restaurant there. Well, I appreciate it, gentlemen. Thank you so much. And uh, it is now my time to go have some dinner. Yeah, I'm sure you got a pepperoni pizza waiting for you. <laughs> as as is tradition, I do. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Awesome, guys. Thank you. And that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. We'd like to thank Barry Rose for being here. You can find episodes of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry at bowdrinpod.com. Tickets for the CWF Legends Fan Fest can be found on eventbrite.com. And if you like the show, tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, well, get yourself over to patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you too can become a come-and-take-it Texas Ranger. We hope you join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway!